welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast, the podcast that models healthy communication for men, empowering them to start the journey of self-work. Now here's your host, Thomas Pierce. Okay, Booyah. Marcus, what's up, man? Welcome to the Bro Novo Podcast. How are you doing? Hey, Thomas. I'm doing really well. Thanks so much for having me on. Likewise. Yeah. Thanks for, thanks for taking the time. Where are you calling in from? Yeah, I'm from uh, Austin, Texas. Oh, for sure. Interesting. That's a, so I'm in San Francisco. I'm, I'm one of the people that invaded, but are you, are you someone who, so you're from Austin. So you've kind of seen the whole, the whole situation unfold there. Yeah. Yeah. It's been interesting to see. Uh, I'm not uh, a, a local uh, to, to the uh, Austin area, but I've been here for a little while now. Um, and yeah, the last couple of years have just exploded with everybody coming with remote work happening. And it's, uh, it's been actually really interesting to see kind of how it's shaping the city and growing pains, obviously. Yeah. What's your take on that as far as the pros and cons of that kind of explosive growth for a, for like a, what was a, a medium sized city? Yeah, uh, you know, there's a lot of pros to it. Uh, obviously an influx of, of very smart, hardworking people, uh, is never a bad thing for a city. You do have those growing pains of, of trying to find where to put them. So there's been a lot of new construction. Uh, obviously there's, we're kind of still dealing with that housing shortage right now. Uh, but I think that they'll be able to work it out. You know, there's a lot of very smart people, uh, who are at the helm here in Austin. And uh, I have faith that they'll be able to figure out a, a great way to get some transportation in place, get some housing in place that's affordable for everybody. Um, and we can get back to, you know, just being weird and, and all vibing together. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> and where were you, uh, before that on your, on your journey? I was in Chicago, so uh, an even larger city. Um, so I'm used to kind of the the city pains, and uh, I get to listen to the people here uh, complain about the traffic, and I'm like, you don't know, you don't know traffic uh, in, until you've driven through <laughs> Chicago at, at rush hour. Yeah, man, I was just in I was just in L.A. Uh, for work, and that's brutal, man. That that's it was kind of bizarre to me because I've lived in in Philly, in DC, Washington DC, and now San Francisco. And those are all big cities, but small, small enough in the sense that you can get around town without too much pain generally. But in Los Angeles, it was like, uh, when I was talking to people, it's more of a, you stay in your little quadrant because otherwise you don't have time for anything. You just basically live and, and stay in your, in your city within the city. And because otherwise driving anywhere, you know, takes an hour. At least. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Right on, man. So what brings you to this podcasting? You know, you're, you're doing a tour right now. You've got a message you're getting out there about your story and some valuable content, kind of messages that you think people uh, would benefit from. So uh, what is your, your mission, I would say, as far as your, your message you're getting out at this point? Yeah. Uh, so right now I'm on a, on a tour of, of podcasts and different platforms to promote my new book that comes out May 3rd. Um, and it's my collection of stories and advice on how to overcome social anxiety. Uh, it's called Don't Shut Up. And it's about my journey from a socially anxious kid to a professional speaker. So I, I grew up, um, you know, in rural Wisconsin. And grew up with severe social anxiety to the point that it affected my schooling, my social life. And I eventually made the decision to kind of push myself to overcome it. And over the last, you know, two decades now, uh, I have gone from that socially anxious kid to being a professional speaker and realized that there was a lot of things that I learned along the way that could be very important and useful to other people who are also suffering from social anxiety if they do want to progress as a speaker and, and overcome some of that fear that, that might be holding them back. So what's the benefit of improving one's speaking? Why, why, why should someone be motivated to learn about this topic? Absolutely. So there's a ton of reasons, but I, I think the biggest one is to just expand someone's life. 
So there's obviously, you know, the the monetary things that that could be listed of, oh, well, you can maybe get a better job, you can, you know, start to do more in your career. But we also forget that you can do more in your social life, you can be a better husband, a better friend, a better person, if you can communicate with others more effectively. And the more people you can interact with and talk to and bring into your life, the the richer it becomes. So there's a, a huge benefit in overcoming that anxiety because you can start to bring in people that you would have never thought were possible. Uh, you can make those friendships and build those relationships that you previously thought were, were unachievable uh, because you now have that confidence to be able to approach people, to have those longer conversations where deep relationships are truly built. For sure. I, I can relate to it in the sense of, especially when I started the podcast, I'd be checking the clock, you know, in the conversations like, okay, how much, how long have we talked so far? How much more do we have to go? You know, like it's a, it's a, I think there is some kind of pressurized environment in this specific setting, but also with any conversation, you know, you meet somebody and you don't know what's going on in their mind. You know, you don't know their motives or, or sorry, I don't know their motives when I'm speaking with them and it can kind of create that, that tension in, in an uncomfortable way. But that's interesting. You said about kind of people and, and opportunities that otherwise wouldn't have it, have it happen. So do you have any stories of kind of ways that, you know, your life was opened up by, uh, by overcoming the anxiety? Absolutely. And the, the book is chock full of, you know, my personal anecdotes and stories. Uh, one that I can think of, you know, right off the top of my head that was just the smallest interaction that became something so much larger was when I was in college. Uh, I was really starting to push myself to overcome that anxiety. And I started to make, you know, friends and talk to other people that were above me in school, upperclassmen. And one day, one of them tipped me off that there was an entrepreneur competition that was happening that week. And they said, Hey, if you want to sign up, I know you're, you're into business. Here's the, here's the sign up. And I went and, and talked to the people who were putting it on and persuaded them to let me participate at the last minute. Um, and throughout that competition, I learned so much about business, so much about, you know, how to be a better presenter. It was a pitch based, competition, I would get up in front of a panel of judges and pitch my business idea. Uh, so that really pushed me. And it, I actually ended up winning. I won the competition. Nice. Um, I, I won $1,000. And beyond all that, I kind of had the realization of, wow, these small connections with other people can lead to much bigger outcomes than we think. So if I wouldn't have talked to that upperclassman, I would not have known about the competition. And if I didn't push myself to overcome that anxiety to present, I would have never won the $1,000. Uh, and through that competition, I met many other wildly successful people who've had a huge impact on my life, each one starting out with a, with a, just a small conversation, and they begin to snowball. And that's really kind of the value I see in being able to discuss ideas with, with other people and, and push yourself uh, to overcome that fear of talking to them in the first place. Totally. I, I agree completely. I've always been a conversationalist. And I think that one of the reasons I love talking to someone is this, you can learn, sorry, I can learn so many things very quickly in, in, it's kind of like the difference between reading a book and, and listening to an audiobook. You know, one it requires re you can read a you can read about things and it's enlightening and enjoyable. But talking to someone who can put their own personal perspective on it and also distill down, hey, here's what I've learned over the last thirty years. You know, and they could especially if you catch someone who also is interested and in, in kind of intentional about their conversation, then you can have a you can have a wonderful time and learning from them. And it's like, I get a big, a big rush from it. You know, if I meet someone who's really cool and I hear the story and I, I get, I get, I get fired up, you know, it gives me so much energy. Um, so yeah, I guess that's kind you, of a, you become a more well-rounded person that way. Talking to, to others, uh, allows you to develop your own identity 
expand your own way of thinking uh, and kind of have those constructive conversations. I feel like that's lacking in in today's society uh, or maybe society in general. You know, I wasn't alive 50 years ago, so I don't know what it may have been like then. Um, but I think at any point in time, more communication is never a bad thing. Totally. Yeah, I was going to say also on that note with our kind of fractured political identities and emphasis on, you know, differences, talking to someone is very humanizing and kind of hearing their perspective. And I had a, I had a guest on recently who made the distinction between empathy and endorsement, you know, and having empathy for someone and their opinion is very different than agreeing with them or endorsing their opinion. And having Absolutely. the ability to talk to someone is is amazing. So I, I have a few kind of like conversational hacks that I keep in mind when I'm talking to people and also like common mistakes that I try to avoid when I speak. Do you have any of those as well or kind of things that you notice about what others say often? Uh, absolutely. And I, I talk a lot about kind of how to start a conversation, how to prolong a conversation and, you know, not to get into too much detail, but at the root of it all is a lack of interest by one or both parties. So if you want to kind of hack a conversation, all you really have to do is show genuine interest in what the other person has to say. And a lot of times I get pushback from my clients and they'll say, well, what if I don't care about what they're talking about? What if I don't like ancient, you know, Celtic stories? Well, that's okay. Because you can still show intrigue in the conversation, even if you don't have any desire to know about what they're talking about, because you can see the passion in them. And then you can start to kind of engage more in the conversation. So though right off the bat, you may not go, wow, this conversation is the most interesting thing ever. If you let somebody kind of get in a rhythm, let them talk openly about what they're passionate about you almost get that energy in return. And eventually, you'll be able to talk about what you're passionate about, which really is what most people want to do. We love talking about our own passions. So if you let somebody else kind of open up to you and create that relationship, you will then get that in return. It's like a seesaw. You have to spend your time on the ground if you want to you know, catch that ride up in the air. So being able to show that interest in something that you may not be super excited about will give you the opportunity later to feel that same, you know, feeling that they had. Totally. Yeah, man. So as far as your growing up and, you know, this passion eventually developed, right, for conversation, was there a specific turning point or, or what was the moment when you decided that, or something changed. I guess the entrepreneurial class was a big one, but you know, in your personal life, or did you ever have a moment where you were like, this has got to change something about how I'm operating right now. Isn't, isn't serving me. Absolutely. There are uh, two defining moments in my life that I think of when uh, I think of my journey to overcoming social anxiety. It all started in sixth grade, actually. So my anxiety was was at its peak and it was to the point where I couldn't even read out loud. So I couldn't read to my classmates or my teachers and it was so prolific that I was labeled as a special reading student and I was put in a special reading class and I kind of felt humiliated, m you know, mostly because I was separated from my classmates to go to this room and read these very kind of you know, easy books that I knew I could read. I was reading all the time, but I just couldn't read them out loud to show that I could do so. So eventually this class continued for a while and my mom noticed that I was reading to my brother before going to bed. And she said, well, that's weird. If he can't read, then how is he reading right now? <laughs> so she forced them to give me a silent reading test. And I scored right within the normal range and was taken out of the special reading class. And that was a very defining moment of if I don't figure out how to communicate more effectively with other people, 
I'm going to get left behind. Even at a young age, I understood that this was going to be a very important part of my life if I didn't, you know, move forward and move past it. So that's really when it started. And, you know, throughout school and all the way through high school and college, it was a a gradual progression to being more and more confident, becoming a better speaker over time. And then actually, after uh, I graduated, I had the opportunity at a chance encounter with a event company, and they were looking for more DJs uh, to, to do weddings, bar mitzvahs, birthday parties, things like that. Uh, and I had been dabbling with you know music production in my free time. So I said, sure, I'll, I'll come to a meeting. They, they liked me and they brought me on as their newest DJ. And <laughs> that was like a pivotal moment in my right. life. It's, it seems crazy to think that th- this chance encounter to become a DJ for a wedding or a birthday party. But what it did was I was now being paid to speak in front of other people. And I soon realized that the better I got at that, the better opportunities I had in the event industry. Soon I became an MC, a master of ceremonies, which has no DJ responsibilities. It is straight talking. You get up on stage, you introduce people, you maybe give uh, speeches, and you direct the event for the entirety of it. And I soon became very, very good at MCing. And I was becoming one of the most booked MCs in the area. And that was when I kind of exploded. I had mastered communication on on a, a micro level, you know, person to person with my classmates, with my teachers. But then being an MC taught me how to interact with thousands of people. And through the through that repetition, I learned a lot of the tips that I have now about how to be a better public speaker, along with being a better interpersonal speaker. So those would be the two kind of defining moments in my life of my social anxiety journey. Wow. Well, well said, man. That's pretty intense for a kid, you know, to have that realization like that. That's like a full on moment that you had right there, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's one of those weird things. You know, I think everybody has those weird moments of clarity as a child where everything else is like, Oh, what am I going to have for lunch? What, you know, what's my favorite ice cream? And then all of a sudden you've got (laughs) these really clear moments of, Hey, what do I need to do to actually be a better person? Um, and I've heard many stories from many people who've, who've had those moments at some point in their adolescence where they, they have kind of those epiphanies. It's interesting. It also speaks to how almost cruel schooling can be. Absolutely. You know, cause yeah. that's, that's pretty, it's pretty messed up. You know, like you could read. <laughs> like, <laughs> I, I totally agree. I, I think it also shines a, a light on some of the pitfalls of, of modern education. Um, yeah. And granted, I haven't, you know, been in elementary school in a while, but <laughs> I think certain students who are not the stereotypical fit in this box type of student may get left behind for other reasons, you know, whether they have dyslexia, whether they can't speak in front of other people uh, or, or a plethora of other reasons. I think if you're not good at X, Y, and Z, you're not a good student when that could be wrong. Maybe you're great at other things or, or maybe you just need a little bit different way of, of teaching. So I think there is uh, some, some light that can be shined on, on that side as well. Totally. I, I think across society, there is this like consistent judgment it put on, uh, you know, the other, I, f- I feel that because we're a consumer culture, and the way that the economy is driven is that it's often, at least among to B to C, you know, this idealized, whitewashed, airbrushed imagery of life, you know, is, is thrown out there as the ideal. And whether it's people who are addicted, who's experiencing addiction, 
experiencing homelessness, not, you know, book smart in the sense that, yeah, they don't, they don't score on the test. They could be extremely intelligent, but just not their, their, their functioning isn't uh, aligned with the way that grading is done. Assessments are done in schools and everyone, you know, it, it, it feels like we're quick to, we as like the capital, we or the society at large is quick to judge these people and kind of discard them. Or for example, people who are in prison or who have been to jail, you know, rather than a rehabilitation state, we're an incarceration state and recidivism is massive. So it's like, it's a, yeah, I think it speaks to a much deeper reality. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, And I think being able to communicate better with each other, could help start to alleviate some of those issues. If you can have a conversation with with somebody who's different than you, you can start to see their perspective, their world, and understand it better, and hopefully make the world better along the way to help those people who may not have a voice that's as loud as, as others. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I totally agree that I think there's, you know, areas that that can be improved drastically um and i i really think it all begins with that communication have you thought about these ideas in the context of inclusion diversity inclusion equity whether it's in a personal level so say a, a personal social circle or kind of at a larger scale like say at work or in the community Hundred uh, percent. A lot of the most interesting people I've ever met and and have relationships with are much different than me, and you know come from disenfranchised groups of society, and it it feels to them like they they don't have a voice all the time, or when they're when they're trying to explain their their own reality and how they live. Nobody listens. So being able to have those conversations with with people, you not only allow them to feel heard, you also understand more than you ever could from just watching a video or, you know, reading a a textbook. You can have real interactions with those people and, and begin to form that empathy. You know, we talked about it a little bit earlier in the podcast of, you know, dehumanizing when you don't know anything about that person. If you can identify with them, have a conversation, all of a sudden, they're not just a a straw man, they're a real person. And you give that a little bit more weight. Absolutely. Seeing the emotions in someone's nonverbal communication, their face, their eyes, the shape of their mouth, you know, hearing the emotion in their voice, all of these things I think are extremely powerful and it goes both ways, right? Cause we're talking about it in the context of building empathy, building understanding, let's say among mainstream white America, opening up to the ideas of diversity and inclusion and, and, and not casting them in a negative light or kind of interpreting it as a, something is going to be taken away from me mindset you know, that's what we're framing it as, but this kind of, I guess, judgmentality can also be used to color a place or a group of people negatively. So for example, I live in San Francisco and I read the wall street journal this morning on the front page. There was a, 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 a title like crime and theft decimate San Francisco, you know, and it's not wrong. Like it's, there's been a huge spike in, um, thefts at businesses. There's been a decriminalization of petty theft and, it, and it's kind of wrecking small business, but it was really interesting to, to kind of be in the location that's being described, reading this perspective from the third party and being present in it and thinking, Oh, how do, how do I feel about this? I'm actually here. What is this? You know, how does it make me feel? So it can be used positively and negatively. Yeah. Yeah. Words are a tool. And like any tool, it can be constructive or or destructive. A hammer can build a wall or destroy a wall. So it it all depends on how you communicate and where that communication is coming from. I, I talk a lot about it in the book of, you know, understanding 
the other party. That's kind of the root of every conversation. And being able to use your words constructively instead of destructively is is a huge benefit. It not only makes you a better speaker, people will inherently, you know, like you more and want to continue conversations. Uh, I think it also just makes you a better person. You know, the words we say cannot be taken back. So you should put out into the world positive messages. Uh, I think there's so much negativity, so much hate that goes around. I think there's plenty. We don't need to add any more. <laughs> totally. Totally. So what are the nuts and bolts of breaking free of social anxiety in your experience? And also in this context, to be specific, how are, how are you defining social anxiety, you know, in your work and in your book when you're speaking on it? Yeah. So social anxiety uh, is, is one of the most prolific, you know, mental illnesses in, in the world. And for me, I don't define it as, you know, oh, you're anxious at this level or above. I think everybody suffers from social anxiety at some point. Maybe you just need to get through one bout. You've got a, a presentation for work or you want to speak at, at your sister's wedding. Maybe you just need that one little push for that event. And then for other people, it's more overarching and they kind of live in constant fear of communicating at different levels. Maybe it's talking to anybody. I've met people who are terrified to even just pick up the phone and make a doctor's appointment. And then it can be anywhere in between on that spectrum. And, you know, being able to just identify that you want to be a better speaker or you want to overcome that fear that you have while speaking, that's really the starting point. Like breaking any other, you know, habit, you have to understand what you want and make a conscious decision that you're going to do it for yourself, not for anybody else, but do it for yourself. And once you can identify that this is what I want, then you can start to change how you identify yourself. Uh, there's a book, Atomic Habits by James Clear, and he makes a really great point about identity-based habits, which is the idea that you're more likely to stick to something if you change how you identify yourself instead of changing the outcome or the process. We're so quick to change the outcome or the process. You know, we want to quit smoking, so we stop buying cigarettes. But really, at the core, you need to change how you identify. So instead of saying, I'm not going to buy cigarettes, you'd say, I'm not a smoker, so I'm not going to buy cigarettes. That internal identity change makes your conviction a lot stronger. So when you change how you identify yourself as a speaker and you say, I am a confident speaker. Now it's a lot easier to get up in front of somebody. If all you tell yourself is, oh, I'm really anxious. I'm not a good speaker. I'm not a confident speaker. Right before you get on stage, that's exactly what's going to happen. But if you tell yourself, I am a confident speaker, because I fully believe that everybody deep down can be, you're 10 steps ahead and you're going to have a much easier time overcoming that fear because you've changed how you see yourself. And that's all about projecting that, that confidence um, that, that you believe you have. Totally. Yeah. Backing yourself. Do you think there's a correlation between those with social anxiety or between social anxiety and thinking deeply or being a, a thoughtful person? Absolutely. I, I, personally am very empathetic and really conscious of kind of other people's opinions, whether that's a good thing or, or a bad thing, you know, uh, but I really want other people to like me. And that overthinking of, oh, well, what are they thinking? What, what, is, what is happening in the room? I think can start to eat away at your own confidence. And I think those two are closely related. You know, sometimes ignorance really is bliss. Um, if, mm. if you don't care what other people think, if you aren't, you know, constantly overthinking those little errors you thought you made, it's way easier to talk than if you are constantly thinking about those items. Yes. I ask that because I, 
that's kind of a, a logical way to give confidence to someone because if they are afraid to speak, they probably do a lot of thinking and they've spent a lot of time thinking and actually have interesting things to say <laughs> as opposed to the person who just runs their mouth all the time <laughs> and shouldn't be Absolutely. talking. Absolutely. <laughs> and <laughs> yeah, that's why I talk so much about, you know, kind of under preparing based on the standard definition. Oftentimes people will say, write out your entire speech word for word down to the exact letter. But what happens is for the people who truly have anxiety, now you have a script that just eats away at you. You miss one word. You pause a little bit too long. And now it's, now it's not just you've made a mistake. It's, oh, I'm off script. And now I don't know where I'm going and you start to get lost. So I always tell people, have a plan, but give yourself room to walk. Give yourself the space so that you're not making mistakes. It's all part of the plan. It's all part of the speech. There's no hard you know, stop at this point. You just have mile markers along the way that say, I want to hit this point at this time. Then I want to move to this. And I've got the freedom to express myself in between. And that gives you a lot more flexibility to not feel constrained, which that constrained feeling can turn into anxiety. I like it. I agree. Thinking about speeches I've given, I just write kind of core themes, also large letters, large font, you know, instead of like tiny words that are hard to read. And then just, yeah, I think at a certain point you have to back, you, someone has to back themselves to, there's a reason you're on the stage. There's a reason that you are in the position to speak and to send it. Yeah. <laughs> I tell myself. Yeah. <laughs> and, and that's actually a really powerful psychological phenomenon. Talking to yourself, hyping yourself up is a really great way to actually overcome those feelings. All you have to do is get started on the right foot. If you can start the speech, you'll get that momentum. And soon enough, you're going to be rolling and you're going to feel better. It's the first couple sentences, really, that all you got to do is get up there, be confident, and nail those first couple sentences, and you've got the momentum to keep going. So I, I talk to myself frequently before I get up on stage, even now. I'll be like, you got this. You you memorized it. You know all the points you want to hit. You can do this. And then walk confidently onto the stage and know that you're meant to be there. Heck yeah, man. I would love to hear your thoughts on active language or activated language in the context of work. Because how we communicate, in, in my perspective, because I've been in a sales and relationship management career thus far in my career. And at least internally and externally, I believe so much of how we are perceived is on how we communicate, not even by the quality of our work, just on how we communicate. So I think that's an important one to talk about. <laughs> I, I think you, you make a valuable point there, uh, especially in the sales world. I, I also you know have a sales background and communication, I would say, is 90% of the battle, especially when communicating externally uh, to, to prospects, to, you know, people outside the organization. Uh, and then we don't realize that there's also internal selling, you mm -hmm. know, you have a, a responsibility and you rely on other people to help fulfill your job role. So you have to sell ideas sell concepts, sell yourself internally to get those things done as well. So I think there's a huge amount of weight on communication in a corporate sense that's overlooked. Uh, you know, so often it's here's deadlines, we got to push, we need more profit. When I think a lot could be solved with, hey, we need better communication too. We need, uh, we need to have a plan on how things are going to be addressed, how things are going to be dealt with when there are conflicts, when there are challenges that arise, uh, because then you can have the, the dialogue to 
overcome them in a, in a healthier way so that people don't feel like they're not being heard or they start to build that resentment for an organization, um, which I think is what we're seeing right now. You know, this mass resignation that's happening. I think it's a lot of people who are frustrated and don't feel heard at, at their current companies. Totally. And work is interesting because in theory, it is a collection of people working together towards a common goal. And everyone has a little different piece of the puzzle they put together to use a puzzle analogy or everyone's on a different oar they're pulling on the boat, but they have to be somewhat in sync. And what I've noticed is that so much of internal team dynamics are how do I make suggestions or comments or fixes on other people's ideas and efforts in a way that's not going to threaten them, that's not going to put them down, and also be done with with empathy. Because that's the whole point, right? We, we throw something up, teammates work on it together, we improve it, we iterate it, it gets better in, in, a, in a healthy organization. But that's really value, that's an important thing because one... A lot of people have fragile egos in the sense, or they do not deal with criticism well. And two, you know, it, it is a situation of there's perhaps internal politics going on, navigating that, maintaining, you know, selling internally. It's like, you know, it's a, it's a pretty, it's a pretty nuanced dance. Absolutely. And I think a lot of that comes down to relationships uh, I've experienced this myself, especially being a remote employee. The people that I've dealt with in person, I have a much easier time critiquing, throwing ideas around with, and otherwise having difficult conversations because I now know them on a more personal level than the ones that I've never met physically or maybe never even met on a Zoom call. With instant messengers now and email, you can just have a completely non-visual you know, visual relationship with someone, never even know what they look like, which dehumanizes them. It's the same thing that happens in traffic. If you don't know who the other person is, what their kind of uh, reasons are behind what they're doing, it's really easy to throw them the bird and, and scream and yell and get road rage. But I know from experience, if you know that other person, you bring that down a notch because now you see them as a human, you know that they have flaws and that they're going to maybe have differing opinions, but it makes it easier to communicate. I, I've, I've got a great story about that happening in traffic, actually. I was driving uh, back from, uh, from downtown and someone cut me off. And I was like, God, this, you know, this a-hole, da-da-da-da-da. Well, turns out I get up there. It's my dad. <laughs> he was in the car in front. He was in there. And all of a sudden, all of my feelings, all of my anger went out the window. So and funny. I was like, oh, well, he's, you know, he didn't mean it. <laughs> but when you don't know somebody, you they have no face. They're, yeah. they're You can't understand who they are everything's more personal everything is is more elevated but if you know them all of a sudden oh well you're more understanding uh he was probably he didn't see me it's okay so it's crazy how quickly it can go from enraged to oh well i get it it happens for sure and i think the same thing happens in the workplace if you've met somebody physically if you've met them on on zoom outside of just a work conversation, then you see them as a person. You you understand that they have feelings outside of this conversation. You can give them a bit more slack. I think companies need to prioritize those relationships because you create better teams that way. Agreed. It's also hard for employees to stay engaged and stay part of the team remotely. You know, and it's hard yeah. for them to succeed, you know, because it's, it's a, it's a, it's a beautiful value add of the time we live in, but 
there's also something exactly like you're saying for those, those tangible moments. So that situation with your dad, did you, what did he say? You know, when you asked him, what were you doing? Did he have any recollection of it or? No, he, he's like, Oh, I didn't even see you. (laughs) And then we laughed about it. You know, I was like, Oh man, I was, I was cussing you out. I thought, and he was like, Oh, sorry. (laughs) Um, And it was just, it was a, such a funny experience because it perfectly illustrated when you don't know who's behind the wheel, when you don't know who's on the other end of that email, it's really easy to kind of go overboard because you don't see another human. It It's, it's detached from you. And now you can just let it fly because, well, it's not a person. They don't, you know, they don't have feelings, but when you know them, when you've interacted with them, there's an additional level of respect that comes. And, those feelings of empathy are stronger. So I would, I would really recommend organizations, especially now with everything being remote, creating opportunities for at least, you know, meetings that are not about anything other than let's get to know each other. And if you can go above and beyond that and actually have in person time together, that's where you get the strongest relationships. When you can physically interact with coworkers, uh, even just one time, that's going to give you a much better understanding of them, respect for them, and a better working relationship. Not saying we have to be in the office all the time, because I, I don't think that that's necessary, but scheduling specific events to bring everybody together will create much better working relationships than just leaving everybody as a faceless name uh, in an email. Totally agreed. Nice, Marcus. Well, I have one more question for you before we jump over to the the three things game. And it's absolutely, it's around that respect and empathy, but for the self, because even way back when, and I think it was, you said sixth grade, you had the self-respect and the the self-love to know that, Hey, like I'm not the problem. You know, it's this structure that is the problem. So how do you go about that? And how would you recommend to someone who is working on that self-love and that self-empathy to get to that point where, whether it's with communication or some other thing about themselves, they're not thrilled with, you know, to get to the point where they can accept and then love. Yeah. And it's such a complex thing to, to continue to work on. Because even I still have those feelings of inadequacy for myself. I'm still my own worst critic, but I've gotten so much better because number one, I've seen some great therapists. If you have the means to do so, I highly recommend it. I think it's a a great asset for anybody uh, who's dealing with anything uh, of any mental level whether it's crippling depression or just feelings of inadequacy. I think speaking to a professional can really help that. But then through those conversations, you can begin to identify those self-deprecating thoughts. And when I have those thoughts, I can identify them now and go, hey, that's not true. You know, try to fill in with positive reinforcement for yourself. Remind yourself you know, you did do a good job. I think so often we always try to critique first. We always come out of something and say, oh, well, I could have done this better. I could have done that better. Try coming out. And the first thing you do is give yourself a compliment. Find one thing you did well. And I think that is what helps me not come up with all of those critiques for myself. If the first thing I hear in my own head is you did a great job, on on this thing. It's a lot more difficult to come up with bad things after that. So it comes with practice. And I think just starting small, when you hear those invasive thoughts of, you know, self-doubt or, or critiquing yourself, just take a step back and think of something good. Remind yourself of something you've done well and just keep practicing that and it'll get easier, just like everything else. Wonderful, man. Well said. Thank you for sharing that. And I'll use that in my own 
for myself too, because I play rugby and I always, after playing, the first thing I do is criticize the plays where I messed up, you know? And I think just like you said, just focus on it's because I care. Right. And that's good to care, but also I'm not going to improve or do better next time if I'm fixated on, you know, my perceived shortcomings. So, yeah, we can all get better at things, but there's a, a healthy way to do it and an unhealthy way. So you got to, ad, you know, admire the things you did well. And then you can go, you know what, if I, if I practice this throw a little bit more, I'll be better next game for this, this opportunity. But I did, you know, X, Y, and Z really well. And that's, that's a much healthier way to, to grow. I do that after every time I speak, you know, I'll, I'll give myself obviously a couple of critiques, but I have to give myself a couple of pats on the back as well. So healthy. I love it. Marcus, you are, you are a bro nouveau stamp of approval. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. I'm honored <laughs> for sure. Okay. Three things game. So we each get one question and we, uh, yeah, we have different questions. So whoever's birthday is sooner goes first. So mine is in August. Uh, is your birthday before August or after? It is not. It's October. Okay. Cool beans, man. Well, I'll go first. My question, what are three things I have learned about honesty, man? One, the truth will set me free for sure. And that, that, that could be the whole answer because it's in relation to myself being honest about, am I doing the right thing? Am I treating myself well? Am I treating my partner well? Am I treating my job well? You know, there's so many things about having an honest look at, at what we're doing and just trying to be honest about it rather than uh, avoid problems. I'd say number two would be, Tough, tough, honest conversations can prevent a lot of mess down the road and not being afraid to be, be real, you know, and doing it in a tactful way without hurting others is, is ideal, but it, it can prevent a lot of collateral damage. And then number three, I would say that it is a muscle being honest. And the more that I have focused on being intentional and honest, the easier it's come to me. Great answer. Nice. Thanks, man. All right. Here's your cue. What are three things you have learned from being lost? Well, I get lost quite, quite often. So <laughs> a couple of things I've learned from being lost. Number one is the best things in life happen when you're lost. The best food I've ever eaten happened when I was lost. The best relationship my wife happened when I was lost. Um, So I think, number one, the best things happen when you're lost. Number two is you're never as lost as you think you are. I often get down on myself, you know, whether it's lost physically in in a location or lost in life. And I feel like, man, I'm so far off. But many times I just take a couple more turns and I'm like, oh, no, I recognize this now. Okay. So, you know, don't put so much pressure on yourself to be in a place where you're you're comfortable and you remember because you may not be too far away, you know. Uh, the final thing I've learned from being lost. I think that's where you find out how to be resourceful. That's nice. where you come up with your best ideas. You come up with creative solutions. And oftentimes you come up with the best outcomes. Wonderful. What gems, Ben? I, re- I really like that, especially about like physically being lost. You're probably not that far off from where you need to be, but also metaphysically and, you know, seeking in life. And it's okay. Like you, we're, we're probably closer to the mark than, than we thought. Yeah, I love that. Awesome, man. For sure. Yeah. Thank you so much for your time, Marcus, for sharing and and your vulnerability and your stories. And I really hope that uh, I certainly am inspired to continue working on my conversational skills and I hope others are too. Uh, Where can... Absolutely. Yeah. Where can the good people find your content and your book and all all that great stuff? Yeah. 
so the book is coming out May 3rd. It's going to be available on Amazon, Audible, and uh, it's going to be through uh, Kindle as well. So however you prefer your, your book content, it is available on a platform near you. Uh, if you want more information or you want to subscribe to my newsletter, you can go to thespeechadvisor.com. Uh, that's a great place where you can just get monthly updates on speaking tips, uh, where I'm going to be if you want to come see me speak at an event, or if you'd like to hire me for either personal coaching uh, or to speak at your next event. Awesome. Bet you would love to read that book, but you can't read. So tough luck, man. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Look at me now, teachers. You said I couldn't read and he's got a book. <laughs> awesome. Awesome, dude. Well, thanks so much for your time. It was a pleasure chatting with you and good luck with uh, your speaking and, and, and the book and everything else you have going on. Thanks again, Thomas. It's, it's been a real pleasure. Awesome, man. Cheers. Cheers.